Hey, friends, and welcome to the StoryForge podcast, where we believe making things matters. I'm Lyle Smith, your host, and I'm a writer, a storyteller, a marketing professional, and founder of NimbleSmith, the content marketing agency. But that's not why I'm here today. Uh, Ordinarily, I would be cataloging uh, a new story of someone who makes something that matters or who is making something that matters to them or the people around them uh, or something that they think matters to the world and will make the world a better place. Uh, This week, however, with all the news of a new variant in the COVID virus, uh, I thought it would be good to go back and take another listen, uh, a new listen, to an episode I did early on in the podcast, um, one that um, will hopefully shed some some light, some historical perspective on what we're going through and how we're getting through it and uh, how some things never seem to change all that much. I think it was Mark Twain who said, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. The trick is you need to understand what's happening in order to hear the rhymes. And uh, Dr. Susan Kent is a professor of history at the University of Colorado and an author of The Influenza Epidemic of 1918-19, A Brief History. Uh, It's a worldwide perspective of what happened just over 100 years ago, the last time we experienced anything like this pandemic that affects the total population of the United States. Uh, It was a great conversation at the time. Uh, I've gone back and listened to it again, and I've learned more having listened to it another time. Uh, it's an encore of the episode, but I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Here's my conversation with Dr. Susan Kent. The only thing we have to compare what's going on right now in the modern era anyway, is, is the 1918 flu pandemic, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, cause there's nothing really, nothing's come through, you know, a modern society like this. Right, that's right. Um, so, you know, when you have, what, 22 million Americans uh, apply for unemployment in three weeks in a row, it, it's like the economic door gets slammed shut. And what do you do? <laughs> you have to look to what's happened before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, you're, in, you're at the University of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long have you been there? Um, 26 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Very good. Where are you from? Massachusetts. From Massachusetts. Okay. That's where I grew up and um, lived until in uh, 1988, I took a job at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Oh, really? Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah. And then came out here. So how are, how are things going out there? How is, how are, are you all as shut down as we are? Um, I have a feeling that we're a little less shut down, mm-hmm. um, but I don't quite know why I say that, except that they're I went out yesterday um, and there were plenty of cars on the road, more than I might have expected, and certainly more than I'd seen maybe a week ago. Right. And the the difference here is that there's so much open space for people to get out onto. Right. They can go into the mountains or just onto the um, trails, the right. footpaths that are, you know, along the front range. And so there's lots for people to get a way to do. And I think they're doing that, though I also think they're doing it very responsibly. I don't see, I haven't seen on the local media any of these big um, collections of people, with the exception of the protests the other day, 
uh, people protesting Polis and the shutdown. And those people were jam-packed right up against one another. Right. I saw that. I saw the coverage of that. And that always, you know, makes you nervous. Um, the interesting part was that it prompted a counter um, demonstration by healthcare workers from the hospitals. Yeah, I saw that. They were standing right in the uh, the, the drive lanes to yeah. try and keep the, I guess they were doing sort of a driving parade protest. Yeah. And they, uh, they were standing, it, was, it made me think of Tiananmen Square in sort of a, Exactly. Maybe a less, slightly less threatening way, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how people are reacting to this, and and, and uh, we'll we'll get to that. I have a few questions about that. Um, but are you uh, is school still in session? Are you are you teaching remotely? Or you're all now, done since the week before spring break. So okay, um, we're so the we're still meeting with our students remotely, but we have right. not had any in class uh, uh, interactions for over a month now. Right. Right. How's that been? Has that been tough to adjust to or? Um, I have a seminar and, and the students are writing a research paper. So we had okay. planned anyway to be only meeting to go over the research papers once a week. And it's been easy. But um, for uh, my colleagues who have very large classes to meet, I think it's been uh, very much a mixed bag. And the students are expressing real on the one hand, appreciation for what the faculty are trying to do, right. but on the other hand, real dissatisfaction with the kind of education they're getting for what they have paid for. Right, right. Yeah, I wonder about that because we haven't heard much about that. My, my son's in public school. He's been doing online learning for more than a month now. Yeah. And uh, honestly, his teacher has been kind of spectacular through all of it, but it's not the same. You know, it's, 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 it's different and it's a lot of getting used to things and we're much more involved than we used to be, yep. which is not entirely a bad thing, but, um, but you trying know, to balance that with your full-time job is a little it's bit tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's a challenge. It's true. Uh, well, so that's good. So, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad your, your seminar students are, you know, getting along. Yeah. Cause you're, you're kind of used to doing it that way anyway, or some version of that way. Well, they're seniors and they're, you know, this is their capstone course. So, so they're doing something that's both familiar to them and um, I think kind of exciting for them, gratifying for them that they're right. producing a big original research paper. Well, so speaking of your background, I looked you up and you are, uh, you are the head, uh, you're, uh, in addition to being, uh, having written about the 1918 flu, you are the head of the religious studies program yeah. out there. It's not my department, but I am an external chair. For oh, very good. Very yeah. good. And you've written extensively on um, what I saw was, was sort of modern British history and uh, gender politics and gender studies and that sort of thing. Yeah, and the British Empire as well. Yeah. Very good. Well, my wife's going to have to read all your stuff. She loves all okay. that stuff. <laughs> and you have you have a book, uh, at least in your bio, you have a book coming out this year uh, about gen gender roles in history or something like that? Well, it's called Gender a World History. Yeah. Gender World History. I, that's fascinating to me. I can't wait to read about that, too. Yeah. Uh, a, a thoroughly un... Um, I don't want to say unexplored, but not explored enough, <laughs> I think. <laughs> so the 1918 flu, 
It was an avian flu. It was called the Spanish flu. And we can talk about why in a minute. Uh, it was apparently a, a variation of the H1N1 flu. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. But we uh, only found that out about 15 years ago. Right. Yeah. Right. So, well, so people are still looking into it and still studying. Back then, the certainly they were, yes. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Um, the population of the U.S. at the time had just broken 100 million. The worldwide population was 1.9 billion uh, compared to what, 320 some million in the US today and seven and a half billion worldwide today. Yeah. So it's, it's a very different world that we're living in. Um, and um, when you, there's, there's not a lot of research out there, not a lot of his, historical record of it, for, and we'll get into that more in a bit. Um, but the one thing that comes up when you first start looking into it, they'll say that the death toll from the 1918 flu was anywhere from 30 million worldwide to 100 million. Worldwide. Yeah, and I think it probably it's up closer to 50 to 100 million. Okay. And it may be that we settle somewhere around 60, something like that. But but just as today we're so undercounted, it, there, it will be impossible to really get to the true number. Right. Well, and you know, we we modern day we we have to remember there was a world war going on at the time. Indeed. Uh, there was a ton of chaos in addition to the pandemic. Um, yeah. So counting all those numbers and assessing you know death toll to one particular item versus multiple might be more difficult. Yeah, but one of the things we'll need to talk about is the role of the war in the spread of this disease. Absolutely. Well, well, tell me about that. I mean, I, I uh, well, first, one of the things I've read about also, and it says one of the interesting things about the, the 1918 flu, the Spanish flu, was that not only did it kill off sort of the weakest among us, the youngest, the oldest, the, the ill, uh, which is what we keep hearing in the news today, as it is comparable to what we hear today, but it also um, killed quite a few healthy people. Yes. It was a very, very virulent. That 15 to 45 age cohort got mm -hmm. hit extremely hard. And um, there are a number of graphs you can look at to see what how the age distribution played out. But if we start at the very young at the top and drop down to people in their single years up to age 10 or so and 15, then that at age 15, that curve starts to climb precipitously again, mm -hmm. falls after 45, and then will rise again for the elderly. So what it creates right. is a W curve, which is very unusual. Yeah, I would think. The and curve is a U. Right. Yeah. And remember, you know, you hear um, some stories, again, of, of what it was like uh, to experience the flu in those days. And it was, you know, they would talk about that particular flu. You could have it, you could be feeling, you know, moderately fine in the morning and have 107 fever by the evening. Or you could drop dead in the street, quite literally. It could happen that really? way. Really? Wow. Yes. That's crazy. Uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> fascinating and scary. Um, so how did it travel the world? I mean, we like this one, the COVID-19, we've heard it started in China and maybe it came from, from people traveling from China, but then we've also heard a lot of community um, uh, infection from there um, and then from Europe also. But the 1918 flu, 
Um, there's a world war going on. Yeah. Uh, there's armies traveling mm-hmm. from every end of the earth to the other uh, along particular pathways. And we have this pandemic going on that, that um, well, where did it begin? Well, so let me break this down, okay, for you. First of all, there are three different waves of the flu. Mm-hmm. And so the first wave begins in Kansas. Um, it's called the Spanish flu because uh, Spain was one of the few countries in Europe that didn't have a news embargo. So it was neutral and it didn't, or putatively neutral, and didn't have a news blackout. So um, all the stories about the flu came out of Spain. So it looked to observers as if it had begun there. But in fact, it began in Kansas, um, outside Fort Riley, Kansas, where there were uh, camps of GIs uh, preparing to go into uh, into the war, into Europe for the war. Mm-hmm. And it moved from there with those troops to Camp Oglethorpe in Georgia. And then from Georgia north to Boston, where troops would embark to um, uh, ship off to France. Mm-hmm. So that first wave starts in the spring and makes its way across the United States and across the Atlantic Ocean, arrives in France kind of late springish, if you will, um, and spreads south out of Europe into Africa and east into Asia, largely um, by virtue of normalized trade routes. But the fact that we're in war it means we've got an awful lot of those commercial routes being used but right. in order to transport goods and material and people. And then in the summer, well, that, that strain of flu was fairly mild. It made people sick, certainly, and it had an impact on the German offensive in the spring of 1918. Mm-hmm. It didn't kill unusual numbers of people. Mm-hmm. The second round of flu or the second wave of flu Um, occurred in August when the flu virus mutated Mm -hmm. and became lethal in the extreme. Now, ordinarily, um, flu flu viruses mutate all the time, Mm -hmm. and they become often very deadly, but they become so deadly that they kill off their hosts and they die out. Mm -hmm. Because of the war, because there was a constant replenishing of healthy young bodies mm-hmm. to the front lines and back and forth and back and forth, mm-hmm. that lethal flu virus was able to sustain itself and spread all the way around the world, killing, as we've mentioned, um, just millions and millions and millions of people. Wow. Had those troops not been there, had they not been the source of host for this virus, it's very likely it could not have done that kind of damage because there would not have been uh, hosts available to allow it to reproduce and send itself along. Right. So they were sort of like like oxygen is to fire. Indeed. Uh, yeah. That they was just what bringing fresh, healthy bodies into right. the lines. Right. And then there was a final wave in uh, roughly January and February of 1919, mm-hmm. um, and that one wasn't as lethal as that second wave, but by then the populations of Europe and the world were so devastated that it took a healthy number of people. It's over the space of six months. That lethal strain of the flu was, we're thinking roughly August through 
uh, the end of the year. Okay. okay. And then a, a brief renewal of it. And so in six months, got it. Perhaps as many as a hundred million people died. That's extraordinary. I mean, yeah. that's just that's a that's that's an extraordinary thing. And uh, you know, part of the problem, in addition to the the fuel of of the virus that we talked about, there's uh, there wasn't much of a treatment for it at the time. No treatment whatsoever. Yeah, a few exceptions. And sort of a misunderstanding of uh, of of what you know um, you know what you could treat a virus like this with. Well, first of all, they didn't know it was a virus. They thought mm-hmm. it was a bacterium. Okay. Um, and they were treating it as if it were a bacterium. They right. thought they could create a vaccine based on their successes in the past with bacteria. Right. Um, but it wasn't, obviously. It was no. a virus, and they had no ability to create uh, any kind of vaccine for it or treatment for it. The one exception to being able to treat this disease seems to have come out of Japan and China, where Mm -hmm. local herbal remedies, which had fever-reducing properties, Mm -hmm. and which were readily available to even the poorest of peasants in those lands, seems to have had significant enough an effect to reduce their death rates. Wow. Well, yeah. yeah. And so like the fever was really sort of the the killing blow of, of that particular virus, no? No, it wasn't actually. It's <clears throat> something that we're seeing today with this COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, what killed people tended to be pneumonia. And oh. that, that um, cohort of people, 15 to 45, the most healthy people in the population. Right died in such great numbers because their immune systems set off what uh, physicians and scientists are now calling cytokine storms. This was an immune reaction that was so powerful Mm -hmm. that it attacked not just the lungs and gave people pneumonia and they died of that, but also their other organs, their liver, their kidneys, potentially their hearts as well. And we're seeing that very same response today in people in a, uh, not of great age or even of a young age, but people in their uh, 20s and 30s and 40s, that same storm of a, of a immune response that is so powerful that it goes after the tissues of the body. That's interesting. I actually read a piece about that the other day. Uh, Dr. Fauci apparently was asked about immune boosting uh, treatments and immune boosting things you can do to, you know, diet or whatever that, that might boost your immune system. And he, he, he chuckled a little bit about it and said, you know, most people don't need their immune system boosted. And if you boost it too much, it can actually have this kind of effect that you're describing, which is... Um, sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how the immune system works. Exactly. You know, um, and there are no, there, you know, still to date, there aren't any real treatments for the COVID-19. I mean, we read about ventilators and things like that, but that's just a way of trying to keep people breathing until they get over the virus. Right. One thing that came up when I was reading about this, uh, that I thought was kind of curious and I've read about it in relation to the COVID-19 as well is mental disorders that come out of, of, of people who have survived the, the virus. Yes, yes. Often the 
symptoms that people experience, the mental and psychological experience of uh, symptoms that people experienced were not dissimilar from those of shell shock at the time. Okay. Interestingly, here this is a disease of the First World War, and that's right. where shell shock becomes so prominent. Uh, some people had hallucinations and nightmares, and very often their hallucinations were actually about Germans. <laughs> Crazy. Truly. So yeah. that so it's you know it's almost a it's a PTSD response, really. Indeed, indeed, it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, our PTSD responses tend to be historically based. So if you're going to have hallucinations, it's funny. I remember my my grandmother uh, who passed away years ago, but she she had memories of the 1918 flu uh, because her grandmother uh, ran a boarding house in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And during the flu, when so much of the city was quarantined or personal or individual houses were quarantined, she would send my grandmother out with buckets of soup or, or food to take to the porches of the people who couldn't get out to the stores. And for the rest of her life, she was petrified of catching the flu. Oh my. Absolutely yeah. petrified of it. And I, I always found that to be kind of weird because I never really understood um, you know, again, because there's so little out there yeah. about the history of this uh, moment in time, you know, this yeah. six-month period where so many people died. So uh, there are two things that she may have witnessed, quite literally. I've, I mentioned people falling literally down in the streets and dying there. It would not be out of the realm of possibility that she observed that. Mm -hmm. The other thing, if she saw any of the flu victims who um, had the the... Um, cyanosis in their faces, mm -hmm. which turned their skin blue. Oh, a bright really? blue that was very startling and very frightening. If she saw that, I can imagine that she didn't that that image didn't go away for the rest of her life. Wow, that's well, yeah. that's frightening. You know, it's it's interesting because I, uh, I I I don't remember learning anything about this really in school. You know. Oh, uh, I remember have, hearing about it from my grandmother and all that sort of thing. But um, back in 2000, I think it was PBS did a documentary where they where they interviewed all these centenarians, all these hundred year old people about their experience of the 20th century. And they talked about the first time they saw a car and the first time, you know, man landed on the moon, the first time they saw a calculator and all kinds of crazy things. And um, they all answered these things in different ways and had different memories of everything. But in one of the episodes, they got to a point where they started talking about the 1918 flu. And all of a sudden, all of them had almost exactly the same recollection of what happened. And they were all, and it was just pure, they were petrified. They were yeah. absolutely petrified of it. And they, and almost every single one of them used the same phrase. They talked about, because so many people died so quickly they couldn't get ahead of the graves uh, to dig all the graves in time. Yeah. They would talk about the bodies being piled up like cordwood. Yeah. Oh. And that was what, that's what got me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've never, and, and never once have I really heard about this in, in yeah. my American history books. Yeah, no, you haven't. Because again, as I say, we, and we'll talk about that, this collective refusal to remember it. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's interesting. There's a, uh, I picked up a, a, a historical amnesia from your, one of, one of your interviews, um, which is 
just fascinating. You know, we always say Americans have, have a short memory for things. Um, and this is worldwide, of course, but, um, but, you know, maybe we really do. I mean, this yeah. is a hundred million, well, maybe a hundred million. Not just the short memory, it's no memory until um, the AIDS epidemic, HIV epidemic right. started to, uh, I think, stimulate some of that research. At any rate, I found some of these quotes, if you want yeah. me to read some sure. of them. Okay. Um, this is from a, a writer in Britain. Her name is Carolyn Plain. And she talked about what she called the plague of nervous character okay. that uh, followed the onslaught of influenza. Pronounced last, I'm sorry, pronounced fatigue, lassitude, depression, sleeplessness, hallucinations, emotional lability, and even dissociation oh, wow. is what she and um, physicians very often noted in their patients. Um, one guy writes in the British Medical Journal, that mental symptoms were frequent. The depression which follows influenza is so constant that it ought to be regarded as part of the disease. Wow. Yeah, and then another, uh, the medical correspondent for the Times, the most distressing symptom was a swift loss of mental capacity and then inability to think coherently. Wow. One guy talks about hysteria after influenza, which is in fact, PTSD. Um, and so it goes on and on. The higher centers of the nervous system suffer chiefly, said one physician. Marked depression is common, emotional instability is often seen, and suicide is by no means rare. And we're living in a time now where, where sort of depression and dissociative uh, issues and, and suicide, especially among veterans, uh, has been climbing at an, at an alarming rate already. Yeah, Prior before all before yeah. all this happened. Yeah. So these are these are real things. And and uh, President Wilson, yeah. Andrew Wilson, apparently had the flu during the Paris uh, agreements, yeah. uh, which impacted his ability, yeah, to negotiate. Correct. Yes, in fact, one of the cases I would make in this little book. Um, is that prior to being struck down with the flu, he was he was holding his own against Clemenceau and Lloyd George as mm -hmm. they were negotiating this peace and 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 saying we will we must have a just peace and a peace with honor that will right. allow Germany to recover. Then right. he gets the flu and he's really deathly ill, um, also suffering hallucinations and these kind of mental disorders that have been reported. Um, his physician is there in describing some of this, his Secret Service detail is there describing mm -hmm. some of this stuff. When he is well enough to go back to negotiations, he folds completely yeah. and no longer is in an, any kind of uh, emotional or physical position to stand up to Clemenceau and Lord George. And right. what is the result is this Versailles Treaty that is so very punitive and so very um, implicated in the rise of fascism that will occur uh, some 10 years later. Well, sure. Well, famously, uh, you know, Hitler's early speeches were all about, um, you know, the fatherland and, and, and uh, being oppressed by, you know, foreign entities and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you can, you can draw a pretty, pretty straight line from one to the next. Um, and Wilson was interesting because Wilson, um, I know, 
he had diminishing uh, mental issues through his presidency. And then to the point where his wife was basically running the White House at one point. He had a series of strokes when he came back from Paris. Okay. Yeah. Which you have to think, you know, could, given his age and, and, and health may have been related in some way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I would not doubt that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this was going on all in the, um, in the midst of the war, mm-hmm. in the trenches on the front and home, yep. wherever, on all around, home being all around the world in civilian areas. How, how were people reacting to it? I mean, how did they, how did they treat like soldiers, for example, from the front? How, how would they treat the flu at, you know, well, at the front? Again, there was little they could do. And seemingly the best treatment was nursing care, which right. is, again, um, treating the fever, trying to keep it down, trying to keep fluids in. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, again, we have this breakdown of 80-20 that we see in the COVID virus, that of the people who contracted the virus, 80% of them got sick and recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the 20% who didn't recover that right. fared so badly, obviously. And we see that today. So that things that tended to enable people to get well was nursing care rather than any kind of medical intervention because there simply was nothing that could be done. Right. So, I mean, anything to keep the fever down because they had extremely high fevers in this thing, you know, that and uh, to keep them from, from getting it permanently into the lungs. And uh, how about, how about in the, on the home front say? There are all kinds of quack remedies. And so people who were selling patent medicines in their stores actually ended up doing quite well because they had a steady clientele. Um, There were all kinds of stories in the newspaper about what you should try to to make it work. And it included things like cinnamon and cloves and arsenic and all kinds of then deadly uh, treatments. They they just threw stuff out there as possible. Uh, interventions, none of which could work. And well, it's like the plague masks, right? They wore those plague masks that looked like bird beaks that were filled with all sorts of um, scented things because yeah. they thought the scent was how it was carried into your lungs. And then, but today we have people, there's one I read from from the 1918 era where they talked about sugar cubes soaked in kerosene. Yes, indeed. Which is just insane. I know. Um, but we have people today who are who are talking about drinking, you know, bleach. And today we see we see a fair number of people. Um, you know, there's, there's an like you say in and around Boulder. There's 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 people who are doing the right thing. They're going even though they're going outside, getting fresh air and getting the sunshine. They're still uh, observing the social distancing and, and doing the right thing. But there's a fa- at least a fair number who. Um, are not, or are ignoring it, or are just outright not believing it and believing it's something else. Was that something that was going on too? Um, I think it was, um, it started out that way. And so places like Philadelphia, for instance, Mm -hmm. refused to put in place the kinds of bans that other cities and towns put in place. So they banned theater going or um, other mass areas. They did not, however, ban bars or churches. So that's, (laughs) It continued to spread. But Philadelphia refused to do any of that closing down, and they took an enormous hit in casualties. Right, 
Right. But and as this thing moved along into the fall, I mean, people, the numbers were simply inescapable. Right. And you just the, can't, you can't ignore it. Yeah. 175,000 people died. That's amazing. So now uh, we're seeing a, a pretty hard push uh, to get back to normal, right? To reopen the economy and all that sort of thing. And uh, even though there's lots of places that haven't, you know, and flattening the curve is kind of a, I don't want to say it's a misnomer. It's, it's it, Flattening the curve is about slowing the number of people going into the hospitals. Right. It's not about um, eradicating the virus. It's about, you know, being able to manage the sick people. Um, which which has been really good in a lot of places, but you know there's a lot of places it hasn't quite flattened yet, and yet they're still talking about trying to get the economy up and running again, which you know clearly is important. Um, but how does that compare to to what was going on a hundred years ago? Well, um, when the war ended, that second lethal wave died out, and that's because the hosts were in effect gone. Right, the wars. Okay and people are out of the trenches and that continuous introduction of new healthy bodies to keep the virus alive uh, stops. But then it comes back in January and February. It's a different strain. It's not nearly as lethal. Um, And it lasts roughly two months, which is not unusual for, I think, a flu period of whatever it might be, incubation and and virility. there were, would have been cases of this flu into 1920, but not, not an epidemic anywhere and not okay. a pandemic anywhere, certainly. Okay. Um, just uh, individual cases of H1N1 that carried over into 1920 occasionally. Right. So, so basically, the, 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 what happens with these viruses is they, they reach a, a level of um, a level in the population that either encourages or forces it to mutate or herd, herd uh, immunity through uh, vaccinations uh, when a vaccine becomes available and, it, and it, it tends to mutate and kind of disappear, right? Unless it has a, a fresh source of hosts, it right. will disappear. It'll, it'll be too deadly to, it kills its host too quickly right. for it to reproduce. How did, the, how did the governments of the time uh, deal with it uh, if they did it all uh, in a pal- policy way, and then afterwards, how? Um, so the United States had local public health agencies and facilities okay. that would have responded on a state-by-state basis. Um, but it didn't, I believe, and again, I may not be right about this because this is not my area. Sure, sure. I don't believe it had a national one. Right. Certainly Britain had um, no public health service at all. And mm-hmm. the flu uh, brought about the creation of that. Also in South Africa, uh, the, the, um, the situation of the flu helped create a public health service. But at the same time, it also helped to further segregation, which had already begun right. in places like Johannesburg and Pretoria and the Cape, but um, enabled the the expansion of segregated areas, black and white. So on the one hand, you've got this positive result if you're a Western scientific thinking person right. in public health agency being created. Right. On the other hand, it helped to um, enhance segregation and ultimately that would lead to apartheid. Right. 
So um, wow. of its positive and negatives. Yeah. Um, History is a, a funny thing that way. I mean, the, the way people react to, um, you know, they, re, they react in their time, right? In their, the, the way they think in their time. So, you know, uh, the, the idea of, you know, all people being equally risky for a health uh, crisis may not have been part of the, the thinking in those days. Well, um, and certainly indigenous folks got hit extremely hard in this country in Canada, in Australia and New Zealand, um, they really took it on the chin in far, far greater numbers than um, Anglo-Americans, for instance, or white Australians or New Zealanders. Wow. And now, again, just to compare to, to now, we're living in a time where people, again, people are, uh, and, and I don't think it's the majority by any stretch, but there are substantial numbers or, or you know, significant numbers of people who kind of fight against the authority of mm-hmm. science, uh, fight against the authority of, um, you know, what these health services are telling us to do, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I, I read somewhere that history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. At best, it's kind of a blip in the historical record, uh, these, for most people, anyway, the, the 1918 flu, uh, yeah. until now, when right. we have something to compare it to yeah. that we feel every day. Uh, why do you suppose that is? Well, again, for about 60 years following the uh, end of the outbreak in 1919, we did not have any kind of conscious historical memory of this event. And it didn't, it wasn't until the late 1970s that Alfred Crosby wrote one of the first treatments of the 1918 flu epidemic pandemic. My argument is that, well, it's twofold. And the most straightforward and simplest way to think about this would be to suggest that what follows 1919 in world history is so immense. The Great Depression, the rise of fascism, the Second World War, the Cold War, that there isn't room for the flu to, in effect, be remembered, um, that it's upstaged by all those extraordinarily dramatic and consequential events. But the other piece of it, I am almost certain, though improvable, unprovable, is that the traumas created by this flu event in the context of the traumas created by the Great War itself, made it much easier just not to think about them, to move on and along rather than try and entertain what this might have meant for society, for this society, for British society, for the French or the Germans or whatever it might have been. That it is truly a response to a trauma that induces a kind of historical amnesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in the context of these other very huge and traumatizing in their own right events and instances that follow. Right, so it really is part of that lost generation, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's I mean, truly what it is. I mean, yeah. it, it, not only is it a lost generation of you know, people, young people killed in a world war, yeah. but it's, sort of a willful uh, forgetting yes. of an event yeah. just to survive and move on. 
because so many more people died of the flu than in combat. So how do you take that in? Really? That's incredible, right? I mean, it's really an incredible statistic just by itself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, history is funny that way. I mean, I remember, um, you know, all these little events that weren't little at the time, you know, they seem like thing, little, little tidbits that get forgotten in the greater story of things, like the Battle of Yorktown, for example, um, was won largely because won by the Americans largely because there was an enormous hurricane that hit um, at that same time or the day of the day before, yeah. and uh, it kept it kept the the British out at sea just a little bit longer. Yeah, and, and the British were there too with their their navy, so they had the, they played a part as well. Right, and yeah. it's it's but it's one of those things that didn't really make most of the history right. books. Right, exactly. For whatever reason, so history yeah, celebrate Yorktown as a great victory. It was an error. <laughs> it was it was a little it was a little bit of a strike, uh, you know, a lucky strike right there. Yeah, exactly. It really was, exactly. and you know, for better or worse, uh, that's and history, you know, is. I remember reading a book years ago called uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization mm -hmm. uh, by Thomas Cahill. And yeah. I remember reading it and loving it and telling people the title. And they all kind of said, you know, like, oh, yeah, he's just bragging that the Irish did. And it's like, but if you read the book, that's not really what it's about at all. It just happens to be they happen to be at that spot in that time. And they happen to have the books and they saved the books from yeah. being burned. Uh, so, and he makes no judgment that that was a good thing or a bad thing. It was just a thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's, history's really fascinating. That it, way. it is it's filled with those little things. Bunch of accidents. Yeah. I yeah. love it. I yeah. love it. All right. I'm lucky to be able to do what I do. I, I, I'm jealous of it. Yeah. I have to say it's really to be that in depth with these things is really, really fascinating. So, uh, thank you so much for your time. I have had such a good time talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Very good. So that was Dr. Susan Kent from the University of Colorado and a discussion of, well, the more things change, the more they sometimes seem to stay the same. Uh, history is an important thing to look to when we're trying to understand things that are going on around us today. So stay healthy out there, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you next time. If you find yourself enjoying the StoryForge podcast and embracing the idea uh, that making things matters, give us a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever it is you listen to these things. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. All recording, editing, interviewing, scheduling, uh, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Lyle Smith of NimbleSmith, the content marketing agency. This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and associate producer, Anthony Sergi, who produces a number of other podcasts, including the wonderful A Guest in the House about all things hip-hop. Music for the program is from the Jody Nardone Trio, Lights Will Guide You Home album. 
And if you like the work we're doing, please share the StoryForge link far and wide and tell all your friends about us. And you can always send us questions or suggestions to our email at cheers at nimblesmith.com. That's spelled N-Y-M-B-L-E-S-M-I-T-H. Or support us on our new Patreon site. You can learn more at patreon.com slash makingthingsmatters. So if you like what we're doing here with the podcast and want to help us continue to put out great conversations with people who make interesting things and pursue the things that matter to them, you can become a member there. Uh, or just shop our store on the website at thestoryforge.com. That's the, the Story Forge, separated by hyphens, the-story-forge.com, and click the shop link at the top of the page. Thank you for listening. <laughs>